Brothers and sisters, it is a privilege to be here with you once again. Please open your Bibles on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The last time I was here, I had the privilege to bring the Word of God to you. And one of the messages I, I delivered unto you was from 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2. Today, in the morning and in the evening, we will be reading from verses 1 through 11, but focusing more particularly on verses 3 through 8 under two main themes, the themes of the, the death of Christ according to the Scriptures and the resurrection of Christ according to the Scriptures. So please read with attention the Word of God with me. This is your God speaking to you this morning from His Word. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you Believed. Amen. This is the word of God. Now, once upon a time, there was a tree. Once upon a time, there was a tree that apparently all was going well with this tree. It was a lovely looking tree. It was strong, it was shapely, it was stately, it was apparently firm. But appearances are not always to be trusted, are they? This is true. So, so often in life. That was also in the case that appearances were not to be trusted. This tree, it knew that its inward strength was fading away. And with much effort, the tree grew one branch or two and another branch. But then a strong wind came to this tree. And the tree almost fell. And with more effort, the tree again grew one branch or two. But a stronger wind came. And this tree, if it was not but by the help of a, another tree right next to it, it would have fallen to the ground. And when this happened, the, the first tree asked to the second tree, how is it that you are so strong that you are able not only to keep yourself stately and firm in the midst of the strong wind of the tempest, but you are also able to give me help, to give me aid, and to hold me up. 
The second tree answered, Oh, neighbor, that's easy. While you were busy growing up branches and new leaves, I was strengthening my roots. And this is precisely what we will deal with today in the morning and in the evening with two roots of the gospel. With the death and the resurrection of Christ, which make up our firmness, our standing ground in the gospel so that we are firm. So therefore, as we deal this morning with the death of Christ according to the scriptures, believer, I want you to know this, that both the death and the resurrection of Christ that we'll deal later, they constitute the essence of the gospel. I won't be telling you anything new this morning or in the evening. It's likely things that you have heard many times. But this is the essence of the gospel. We don't graduate beyond knowing the gospel. We always have to go back to the basics. And these events, the death and the resurrection of Christ, which happened in history, they were predicted of old, they were fulfilled in the New Testament, they were preached by the apostles, and they come to us in the revealed word of God today. And just as the Corinthians, just as the Corinthian church there, we as well, we are to remember this message. Last time that I was here, I preached a message on remembering the gospel, if you remember that. And here, Paul is moving from this call to remembrance from verses 1 and 2 to the contents of the gospel from verses 3 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. So here, we are called to remember specifically the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ according to the scriptures. For didactic purposes, we are dividing this one big message in two, in which we'll be dealing this morning with the death of Christ according to the scriptures in the evening, the resurrection of Christ according to the scriptures. And my methodology here is very, very simple. I want to walk with you through the scriptures a little bit to establish what it means that the death and the resurrection of Christ are according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. Because that's the emphasis of our text. The apostle says, I deliver to you what I received. It's not his own making. It's not his invention. And he says that he delivers what, I re- what he has received, which is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And again, he resurrected according to the scriptures. So the first part of our message today, the first point, will be, you can call, the meaning of death according to the scriptures. Or if you want to, Give another title, you can say the promise and the prediction of the death of Christ. And the second portion, the second point of our message will deal with the meaning and the result, with particularly what it means in our text here in verse 3, that not only Christ died according to the Scriptures, but that He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So, very simple, very straightforward. There's no innovative preaching today, but we will deal with the basics of the gospel. And it's important for us to understand the context here. Paul, as he is approaching chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, he, has, he is coming from a series of exhortations, of teachings that he has delivered in the, first, in, in the previous chapters in which Paul was basically following one methodology. I like to say that if there are any of you brothers or sisters here who are engineers, that Paul kind of had an engineer mind here in the epistle of 1 Corinthians. Because he was a a problem solver. He had a problem reported to him. He went back to to his manual, which is the gospel. 
He found a solution and he applied that solution in light of the gospel to the church. So in the first few chapters there, there you find Paul dealing with the problem of parties and groups in the church. I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of this person, that person. And Paul goes back to the basics. The gospel is not about me, it's not about Cephas, it's not about any other apostle, it's about Christ. So let's go back to the gospel. And you keep going in the epistle of 1 Corinthians and then you find Paul addressing brothers suing one another in the church. And how can that be? There's no wise among you. You are the body of Christ. You should be able to deal with one another in a healthy way. And you keep going in the epistle and there's the problem of fornication in chapter 5. And Paul's go back to the basics again. Don't you know that your body is not yours? You have been united with Christ. And, and this keeps going. You have other problems. You have the problem a little later of the, the different spiritual gifts being misused in the public service. And he will ba go, go back to the basics again. The, the gifts are to serve the church. They are not to, for us to, to call attention to ourselves, but to serve the church in Christ. And he applies the, the same basic message of the gospel from different angles to those particular problems. As we approach 1 Corinthians 15, the problem that we are dealing with is a doctrinal one. It's a doctrinal one. It's the problem of false teachings concerning the resurrection specifically. But in order to deal with that, that he will deal more strongly and more specifically from verses 12 on, he has to establish the basics. So your problem is doctrine? Okay, let's get back to the basics. Here's the death and resurrection of Christ. They are according to the scriptures. That's our standing ground. And therefore, on the basis of that, he will deny the false teachings concerning the resurrection from verses 11 on. And I believe that Paul, and if you remember the, the background of this epistle, Paul was there in the church of Corinth for at least one year and a half teaching. And if you read Acts chapter 18, for example, you'll find that Paul was there Sabbath after Sabbath, reasoning with the Jews that Christ, that, the, that Jesus was the Christ. And I believe that Paul was doing something very similar to what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Luke chapter 24. You remember that conversation that took place there. The disciples on the path of Emmaus, they were there wondering what happened to, to that Jesus who they thought was the Christ, but that, well, he died. He couldn't be the Christ in their perspective. Then he comes to them, he walks with them, he listens to their conversation and all of their reasoning, he says, Oh, you fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken concerning the Christ. And beginning from Moses, beginning from Moses, he unpacks all that the Old Testament had to say about him, or a lot of it. So I believe when Paul is coming here, in verses 1 and 2, it's very clear. He says, I preach to you, was, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you already. So he is remembering them of something they know. And then he uses that specific expression that this is the gospel, the death and resurrection, according to the scriptures. So in just a few words, but they are so loaded with meaning here, Paul is reminding the church of that whole one year and a half in which he did a, a Jesus-like teaching similar to what happened in the path of Emmaus, concerning what the Old Testament taught about the Christ. 
Therefore, we need to understand, we need to have an understanding of what the gospel of Christ according to the scriptures is, and particularly here, the death of Christ according to the scriptures. And I present to you that, of course, there are many texts, many texts in the Old Testament that talk about the death of Christ. But I want to deal briefly, and it's really briefly here, so that we have a sample, so that we have a, at least an idea of what Paul is talking about when he uses this expression. I want to deal briefly with Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, which we had sung earlier here. So if you turn your Bibles briefly to Isaiah 53, you will see a sample of what the teaching of Paul was during that one year and a half in Corinth that he now calls the church to remember. What was the death of Christ according to the scriptures? Isaiah 53 presents a kind of man known as the song of the suffering servant. It presents a kind of man marked by at least five characteristics that would come, that would be the promised anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Isaiah chapter 53. If you read verse 1 through 3 in the beginning, it says that who has believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground, no form or comeliness when we see him, no beauty that we should desire him, and he, but he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, we did not esteem him. The first description that we find here about this, this prudent servant of the Lord is that he is one that has no apparent beauty. He is one that doesn't have anything in himself that calls attention to himself. And he will be rejected. It seems in the text that it is on the basis of this lack of human glory. Even though he had a lot of glory, he shall be glorified. But this is particularly what we find as you read several texts in the New Testament. This is particularly what you find in the person of the Lord Jesus, this prediction. One that had no apparent beauty, but was still rejected. Luke 13, 34, for example, Jesus speaks about how he, he wished so much to gather Jerusalem as a hen, gather the chicks under her wings, but they would not want it. He was rejected by his own family. If you read Mark 2, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, Mark 2 or 3, his own family comes and, and they try to tie him while he is preaching, his mother, his brother. He's rejected by those of his own nation. And he says that a prophet in his own house has no authority. That proverb. He's rejected time and time again, even by his own disciples in the cross. They flee away from him. He's rejected time and time again. One that had no apparent beauty, but still was God in flesh. Being despised by sinful men. The light has come, but men rather love their own darkness than light. And therefore they despised Christ. All of us, all of us did that. There's another mark, another characteristic of this kind of man that will come. And we see that from verses 4 on. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. 
afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. If you keep reading until verse 9, this, the same tone prevails. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, afflicted open not to his mouth. This man is promised to suffer. He will have a kind of suffering in which this suffering will, will, will pay, will take the place of the suffering of other people. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Isn't this particularly what we find in the person of the Lord Jesus as well? That his death was predicted according to the scriptures in the Old Testament here as well. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 actually summarizes this truth when it says, For our sake he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who knew no sin was smitten and afflicted by our trespasses, our sorrows, he carried, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. That which for the Lord Jesus Christ was chastisement and affliction and pain and suffering for us was peace. There's a prediction of this kind of man as well as you keep reading in verse 7, that in this suffering he will die silently before his accusers. He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. Isn't that also particularly what we find in the New Testament, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his death was being predicted according to the Scriptures, what would come to pass in the events leading to his death, that in the event of his death he would be silent. In fact, the very words that he spoke from the cross were not words in defense of himself, but in defense of those that he loved. He sat in the cross, Oh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are not words of a man trying to defend himself, to preserve himself, to preserve his own life. He had something greater in his sight. For the price that was set before him, the salvation of his elect, he endured the cross faithfully as a silent lamb that is led to its shearers. He was dumb and silent. He not, did not open his mouth. There's another prediction of the events surrounding the death of Christ that show the death of Christ according to the scriptures here. It, it is in verse 9 that the Messiah will be buried among the rich. They made his grave with the wicked, with the rich at his death, because he has done no violence, nor, when, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. A specific prediction related to the death of Christ. Now, you can argue in a sense that all the previous ones you can control somehow as a human being. You can, in a sense, get yourself to be rejected by men, by people. You can, in a sense at least claim that your death is a substitution to, for sin, but you can, in a sense, hold your tongue before violence, before people accusing you, but can you really control what happens after your death? I mean, it's very limited what we do, what we control of our lives as we are alive. It's very limited already, but can you control what will happen with your grave? 
This is a specific prophecy pointing forward to the place of the burial of the Messiah. If this was just a common man, this would not happen. This would not become true. But because he is indeed God, the one predicted here, the Messiah, the anointed one predicted here in Isaiah 53, this comes to happen precisely in the Gospels. So as you read, for example, Matthew chapter 27, in the last verses there, verses 57 on, you see that Joseph of Arimathea goes there, and he was also a disciple of Jesus. He goes to Pilate, he asks for the body of Jesus. And Jesus is then buried in the grave with the rich in a shroud, lining shroud. And there's another prediction here that in the act of his death, as he is dying, he would be counted among criminals. Verse 12, and it was already in verse 9, but again in verse 12. Therefore, I will, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Can you see? Five times, at least, Isaiah 53 is saying, the death of Christ is according to the Scriptures, 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 in many ways in which it predicts pre precisely what would come to pass. This is the kind of teaching that Paul certainly taught the church in Corinth for a year and a half. Maybe not this specific text, but something like it. And this is precisely what comes to pass in this last prediction here, that he is, of course, counted among criminals. He is crucified with a criminal in the right, another criminal in the left, and counted as a criminal, judged as a criminal. But there's also... There are also many predictions in the Old Testament, not only concerning the kind of men, but the kind of death that would come to pass. Psalm chapter 22, which was the psalm that Christ himself took upon himself to be describing his experience in the cross as several prophecies, several prophecies related to the death and the resurrection of Christ, his deliverance. If you look with me briefly here to understand what is this gospel according to the scriptures, open please in Psalm 22, we will look at three verses very briefly, very briefly here. We'll look into verses 16 through 18. Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. Remember that this is the psalm that starts with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ, by proclaiming those words in the cross, makes it clear for us that this psalm is talking about himself there in the cross. In verses 16 through 18, it says, it says, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. And then it follows his prayer for deliverance from verses 19 on that we have sung as well. But you see, there are, there, are, there are at least in each verse here, at least a prophecy pointing forward to what would happen in the cross. First of all, the Messiah will have his feet pierced. Verse 16, they pierced my hands and feet, his hands and feet pierced. And you see that's being fulfilled particularly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is amazing as we think about that. Because at this time, crucifixion was not invented, or, or it was at least not yet popular. This was a thousand years before 
Christ came. The prophecy of, of Isaiah 53 was 700 years before Christ. Now, the specific prophecy about the hands and feet being pierced is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that he comes later. He resurrects and Thomas is doubting. And he comes back to Thomas who was doubting. He was saying, I won't believe until I, I see and I touch his hands and feet. He comes and says, look, Thomas, touch me. Touch my side. See that I have been pierced with a spear on the side. Look at my, the wounds at my hands. This comes to fruition. This prophecy becomes true in the Lord Jesus Christ himself perfectly. A thousand years later. This following verse says, I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. And there's another verse in another psalm that also says that he will not have any bones broken. Those two verses, they, they, they point to the same event, that Christ in the cross will not have any bone broken. The, the Hebrew here has the idea of counting the bone as a whole. And you see that this is fulfilled particularly in Christ as well in the Gospels. This is not me making up things so that you can go back and try to, to, to reason your way towards the resurrection of Christ. Actually, the apostle himself, he says that if you read John chapter 19 with me. John chapter 19. The apostle John himself points to the fulfillment of this prophecy. John chapter 19 verse 31 on. Therefore, because it was preparation day... The bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And if you know something about the crucifixion, you know that they would break the legs away so that they would die quicker. The man is there, hung, hanging in the cross. If you break his legs, he can't breathe. He dies quicker. So Pilate just wanted everyone to be dead, to clean up, to clean up the mess, as it were, to celebrate the Sabbath. How ironic. How ironic. The Savior of the world, hanging in the cross. The religious preoccupation there is, let's clean up this mess so that we can keep the Sabbath. While the one that fulfilled the entire law perfectly was hanging there in the cross. But the text goes on. The text goes on and it says, Then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. He who has seen testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. That is quoting back to a psalm. Psalm 34, if I'm not mistaken. But the same prophecy is being pointed by this very text here in Psalm 22 that speaks about Jesus Christ's bones being counted as a whole. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. And this very prophecy is being fulfilled here. And the kind of death is also predicted in the fact that in verse 18, it says that they divide my garments among them for my clothing they cast lots. Now you see, this is what happened with Christ. And it is not uncommon that people would divide the clothes of the dead among themselves. The soldiers would get the clothes of the dead and they would take for themselves. So there's nothing special at a first glance in this prophecy because that would be a common event. But you see, 
the prophecy doesn't say only that they will divide their, his clothes as he dies, but that they will cast lots in the process of dividing the clothes. You see the degree of precision that the scripture puts in predicting the death of Christ. Again and again and again, the death of Christ is seen to be, as you read the Old Testament attentively, in light of the New Testament, you see that the death of Christ is according to the scriptures. This was predicted of a long time ago. It was fulfilled in Christ. It was preached by Paul. And now the Corinthian church and you and me, we are to believe that the death of Christ is indeed according to the scriptures. What a marvelous gospel we have, brothers and sisters. What a firm conviction we have. This is the conviction that Paul wanted the Corinthian church to have because they were being challenged by false doctrines all around them. They were being challenged by, by false teachings that would teach immoral behaviors in the congregation. In 1 Corinthians 15, he is dealing with the particular problem of theological issues of false doctrines, but the church is surrounded by, by false teaching, by immoral practices, and Paul wants them to know, brothers, I have preached to you the gospel. This gospel is according to the scriptures. Remember that gospel as it is. Go back and search your Bible, search the Old Testament, and see if what I'm telling you is true. Be like a Berean. And confirm indeed that the gospel is according to the scriptures. The death of Christ particularly here this morning as we deal with it. But it is important, brothers and sisters, not only to have this firm in our conviction, firm in our hearts, firm in our heads. As we understand that the gospel is certain, is firm. It's not an old wife's tale. But also we need to understand the meaning of the gospel for us. We have to address the question of the so what Okay, the gospel is according to the scriptures, so what? How does that change my life and your life? What is the meaning and the result of this particular truth, of this objective truth for me subjectively? This truth is applied for us, first of all, in the fact that Christ has died according to the scriptures for our sins. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. So if it is certain that he indeed died according to the scriptures, and the word of God says that he died for our, my sins, then I also have a certainty that my sins are forgiven. Christ makes atonement. He makes expiation for sin. Meaning expiation, that theological word that we use to say that he paid for our sins so that the sin with its guilt would be done away, would be taken away from me and from you because he died according to the scriptures for our sins. And of course, this presupposes that we have sinned. And First John says that whoever says that he has not sinned, he is lying and he's making God a liar. But we indeed have sinned. We indeed have our, a need for ransom, a need for salvation. And knowing that, we can come to Christ for this ransom, for this salvation. Our need for ransom comes from our sins. They exist. They are real. Paul is not teaching a gospel here that denies the doctrine of sin, but that presupposes the doctrine of sin. We are sinners in need of salvation. We have broken the law of God over and over again. As we read the law of God time and time again in the public services, we are reminded of that. Not only... In thought, we have sinned indeed. Not only that, but we have a sinful 
nature that is inclined to do evil time and time again. We, we just had a, a few babies born in the congregation, a, a baby at least, another one that's about to be born, right? If you go into some circles of Christian theology, you have babies treated as little innocent parties that are sinless and perfect until they reach an age of discernment, an age of maturity, in which their sin will be counted. Well, that's not the biblical teaching. Paul is not teaching that kind of doctrine of sin. He is including the whole church here, as he says that, that, they have died, that Christ has died for their sins, for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And even babies, they have a sinful nature, even if they are not completely able to discern what they are doing here and there. But those of you who are parents, or, or who are parents-to-be, you will know that, I will know that as well. My wife is pregnant. You don't have to teach kids to do anything wrong. You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach, to teach them to manipulate you. You don't have to teach them to disobey father and mother. They just know that. They just know that. Why? Because there's a sinful nature in the heart of every human being that tells us that to do evil is good and to do good is evil. We have this distorted nature in our hearts until the Holy Spirit comes and breaks our hearts and changes our will, our volition, and makes us love God instead of sin. And even then, even then, we have to battle against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Even though, yes, we love God after being saved, after being regenerated, but even then, there's the influence of sin around us, and even within us, tempting us, in spite of us being born again. So, there's this need of ransom, because sin makes separation between man and God, and therefore, we need to be ransomed. And Christ knows that. Christ speaks of that. He says himself in Matthew 20, 28. I came to this world. I came here not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many, as a substitution, as a substitutive atonement. Meaning, he takes our place and then takes away our sins by Having in him, as we have read in Isaiah 53, receiving wounds that heal us, having our sins over him, the chastisement that brought us peace was for him indeed a chastisement. And this is indeed the offense of the cross, because as we consider ourselves that we are sinners, look at what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that the offense of the cross is this that I am so condemned, so lost, so hopeless, that if He, Jesus Christ, had not died for me, I would never know God. I could never be forgiven. And well, that hurts, that annoys, that tells me that I am hopeless, that I am vile, that I am useless. And as a natural man, I do not like it. This is who you are without Christ. That's, be that's why you need that He died, for Him to die for your sins. But the cross... The death of the Lord Jesus Christ, it has an aspect in which it is offensive, but it testifies even more to the greatness of sin. Because, you know, God chose to reveal His justice. That's the whole topic of the book of Romans. He chose to reveal His justice, to disclose His justice in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection. And he, it is amazing that it takes 
the very Son of God to pay for my sin. It's not that God gets a, a very righteous man, a, a man like Daniel. You don't find anything bad about Daniel in the Scriptures. Righteous man, the greatest example of faith in the Old Testament, together with Abraham. And then he gets this righteous, perfect man, and then he can be the sacrifice. No, it takes the very Son of God to pay for the sins of humanity. It shows how serious sin is. J.C. Ryle says in his book, Holiness, that no proof of the fullness of sin, after all, is so overwhelming and unanswerable as the cross and the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and the whole doctrine of his substitution and atonement. Terribly black must that guilt be for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must that weight of human sin be which makes Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood in agony in the Gethsemane and cry at Golgotha, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It takes the sacrifice of the Son of God being rejected by the Father to pay for your sins. Do you see the greatness of your sin? How great it is. That's why you need that he dies, for him to die for your sins. That's why you need this, this blessed doctrine. But the cross shows this offensive side, but there's also a side that, is, that testifies to the greatness of God's love. That God so loved the world. He so loved you, believer, who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He so loved you that he gave his only begotten son to die for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, I love his quote on this. He says, I only know that my rags and tatters have really gone when I see them on the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who wore them in my stead, became a curse in my place. The Father commanded him to take my filthy rags off me, and he has done so. He bore my iniquity. He clothed and covered himself with my sin. He has taken it away and has drowned it in the sea of God's forgetfulness. And when I see... And I believe that God in Christ has not only forgiven, but also forgotten my past. Who am I to try to look for it and to find it? My only consolation when I consider the past is that God has blotted it out. No other could do so, but He has done it. And this is the first and essential step in the new beginning. The past must be erased in Christ and in His atoning death. It is. That's what he does. He makes you a new creature. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from every iniquity. He is the perfect manifestation of the justice of God so that God in the cross, God the Father, would be indeed shown to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he has so loved you, because he is just, perfect, and righteous. He can take the place, and because he so loved you, he indeed wanted to take the place. He did an eternal, everlasting plan, an all everlasting eternity with the Father, that he would come and die for the sins of the elect. That's the love of Christ for you, that he died for your sins. Do you understand that, believer? Do you understand that? Do you understand that, that now being justified with Christ. You have peace with God by His death. Your sins are blotted out. What a great benefit. What a great salvation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The old man is crucified with him. The old man no longer lives, but we live in Christ. And because of that, our works are acceptable to him. Our works, which are otherwise tainted, otherwise, even our faith is tainted as we, we, we come to Christ. But he accepts us not because of the degree of our faith, but because of the object of our faith, which is Christ, the perfect one. And now our works, the things that we do, can be accepted in the sight of God because they are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And now you can live indeed a life of gratitude out of Christ dying for your sins. We can offer acceptable sacrifices of gratitude to God. This is the greatness of the death of Christ according to scriptures for you. We have started this message talking about that tree, the two trees, the apparently wise tree who was foolish, but the quiet tree who was actually wise. The Lord Jesus told a better story, actually. I saved that for last because it's a better one. Matthew 7, chapter 7, verses 24 on. He concludes his sermon on, on the mount, in which he builds up in which he discusses the basics of the gospel and he sets forth a lot of the basic teachings of who God is, of who he is, and the law of God. And he says from verses 24 on, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. Great was its soul. This morning you have heard about the death of Christ according to the scriptures, which constitutes one of the essential aspects of the gospel message. You have heard of how his death is indeed predicted in the Old Testament, fulfilled in him, preached by Paul and to you today. And you have heard how this death was for you if you believe, if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I exhort you, build your life over this foundation. Go back to the basics. Never think that you have graduated beyond the basics of the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Christ. Build your life over this foundation that the Lord Jesus Christ has died and resurrected for you. Has died for your salvation, resurrected for you as well. For your glorification, for giving parting of righteousness to you. And as you build your house over firm grounds, you will find that you yourself are as firm as this gospel is. Amen. Now let us pray and thank the Lord for his word preached. Lord, we thank you for your death. Beloved Lord Jesus Christ, your death according to the scriptures that was for our sake that we indeed can rely on this blessed substitutionary atonement that you have taken our, took our place in the cross, beloved Christ, to pay for my sins, to pay for the sins of every elect who trusts in you. Praise and worship your holy name as we trust in you 
to be our foundation, our standing grounds in whom we stand. As we remember the gospel, once again, the basics of the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Christ, Lord, build us over this foundation. We pray and we ask you.